Book Review, Episode 20. This week, I'm going to read six posts as usual, and then I'll read the last maybe three chapters of the Blue Nile, maybe the seventh and eighth chapter, maybe only the seventh chapter, but I have the seventh, eighth, and ninth chapters done, and that's the whole story. So I've read the first six chapters um, here so far. So we'll make sure that all gets taken care of. I finished the book cover. I've got the whole PDF together. Um, and I'm excited to release that sooner than later. Um, and I don't actually know when. I want to read it today here and then decide um, what it's going to be. Episode 20. Um, very happy about that big round number. Um, I think the, the, the pat on the back, the, uh, you know, doing 20 podcast episodes is actually a lot um that's a lot of talking into a microphone saying saying stuff um and i'm really thinking about the first one and how that went and the 10th one and how that went and now the 20th one and how that seems to be going so far at the three minute mark um you can get better at things this is uh you know confidence and you know ability it's really just it's doing something doing a small thing more consistently has proven to me i think this is very fucking clear to me and it wasn't always like this wasn't always clear to me especially when i was younger it's very clear that if you just chip away at something every day the the product um is far better than trying to just take a massive swing and create something masterpiece-esque thing all in one go um i think that's really one of the few things i feel like i truly know um in my life i feel confident about that so continuing to just do this show and i hope that each week gets a little better um and applying that to other things as well so the daily writing the daily post this is this is how it all works each day i write a small poem um usually near the end of the day it just seems to be the the time when my brain is is um right cooked for it writing first thing in the morning 
in in those ways it's fine but i feel like when you wake up and start writing sometimes some journaling just like calibrating your thoughts is kind of how it's though how that energy feels right like that wake up morning kind of brainwave stuff but then you want to go right into the the puzzle the storyline the plot stuff the the prose um style stories all of the the logical intelligent kind of tasks that all that stuff is fresh in the morning and, and throughout the day that you kind of use that up i think and um, so by the end of the night you know should be pretty fried at the end of the day you're kind of pretty fried with what you can how far you can push those elements and then maybe there's a second one later or whatever but generally i try to keep that into the daytime and then at night move into some other tasks and one of those tasks my point being is writing a simple poem um one a day i have maybe about 700 and whatever well something now and that's a lot and is the very first one i wrote any better than the one i wrote whatever on friday um i don't know but but i think that it here's why it is here's why it is I feel like I could feel myself trying on the first one and I could feel myself um, it was more of like a, a desperation of like release because I hadn't been writing that way in a while. I'd put all my energy into just writing plots and I was missing something when I was getting too analytical and I just wanted to basically sketch and draw cartoons um, and that's what those poems are um and then once i'd exhausted i think by about post 500 then i was like okay now i feel like i'm writing things that are even despite myself they're more natural they're my point of view is like clear in that little practice because i'd exhausted everything that i wanted to do and everything i thought i was supposed to do and then there was nothing left and and then once you're at that point where you've kind of exhausted all of the so meant so much of kind of processed all the other kind of whatever media and creative energy that is kind of pent up and you feel like there's nothing left it's like then you can make something that um feels a little more it's like an under exaggerated way a little more it feels more not a little more it feels like it really comes from yourself and you don't just get there the first time you give it a shot you have to truly exhaust everything that's that's how it feels to me then after a while i don't even i'm sure if i thought about it for more than two seconds i'd remember but then starting to read those posts 
on these podcasts only a few months ago. It hasn't been that long. But that opened up a whole nother world of this stuff. And now, an example today, have I what have I prepared for the show? Mostly those posts, which I've just that system's already running. That's already going. Running one a day. So I'll read those and I don't remember necessarily what they are from the week. So it's all basically uh it's all basically improv at this point. And then I'll read some of the pro stuff I've been working on throughout the week as well. That's it. I didn't prepare anything else. Um, and I don't know that if I sat around preparing stuff to say now that it would be any better. I think I would just kind of get into my own head. And really all I can do is just um, hit record and kind of see what comes up. And those are the raw materials now that's and and i think i was even saying this last week but truly recording these podcasts is very fun for me i really truly enjoy it and um and i'm not going to stop anytime soon i mean maybe i don't think i will it's I'm, it's a great thing to do even on a day like today where i really just was not in the, I'm not in the mood to record a podcast today if I'm being if I'm honest I was like it's not a chore but I was like I was like looking at the clock I was like yeah maybe I'll wait another hour just to see if I'll get in the kind of the zone of it but it's like no 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 that's a that's a dangerous fucking path because then next thing you know it's just you're just procrast why procrastinate just fucking do the thing turn it on and do it so here I am doing it um Recording the podcast each week, it's great. The Eric Review, uh, you know, literally the greatest Canadian fiction podcast in the world. And then recording the video stuff on it, which is new and also very fun, as we know. And then now this new thing where I've started to record videos outside of all of this stuff this is what i'm trying to get at this is where it's led me now that i've done 20 of these things this is the the result and i feel like i'm going down some strange new territory but again that's kind of the, obviously the fun part making taking this little gopro camera the most simple idiot proof fucking camera ever and recording and then editing it and um putting them on youtube so i have three are up there right now on the youtube and i got another two that i'm just putting finishing touches on and then i'll put those out as well what are the are they any good not really they just kind of are what they are, but the experiment is like, okay, well, similar to the posts, similar to the podcast, which is still in basically a toddler state. What happens if I made a hundred YouTube videos? I don't worry about them being good as much as possible. Just have fun and do the best you can with it. But 
inevitably, if you made a hundred of them, and I don't know, a hundred just seems like the fun number. Then what? Then what is it they look like? Look at them. It might take probably two years or something to get to make a hundred of them. Don't think about. Don't plan them. Don't uh, look back at the old ones. Don't do anything analytical. It's at make the video have the most fun possible each time. Work on them until they feel like, like they're done. It's just a gut thing and an audience of yourself. Um, and just do that as many times, many times. And I'm saying the magic number I've picked for this, the video experiment, make that a hundred and then see what happens and see how you feel about it. And maybe you don't get that far. Maybe you get to like, you know, 30 and you're like, I'm done with this. I'm bored. This was not writing's better. Just stick with that. You know, so this has been very fun for me. Here are the, the things that this, here were my thoughts split. Number one, if I, go too far into this video thing am i going to start neglecting obviously my the prose writing or something else that i really want to want to focus on yeah it's kind of one of the risks um is not having enough attention to do everything um that you want to do uh so we'll see what the limits are and you know whatever maybe i make less video maybe blah, blah blah that doesn't matter but that's one of the kind of neuroses or like the mental blocks i've already put up of like eh, like well if you do that and it starts and it and you start enjoying it too much then what if the prose goes away and you stop writing as much prose as you want it's like what kind of fucking like that's so useless it's like if you're enjoying something so much and you keep doing it and you naturally gravitate away from another thing, it's like, fine, that's fine. You should probably go with that intuition and not try to, you know, not try to fight against that. Not to say that you don't need to keep disciplining yourself to write because truly that's a big part of that whole thing. But I'm not worried that that's going to go away. So... That's one of those split thoughts. The other one is what I've noticed. And now, you know, whatever, I made only three of those little YouTube videos so far. And they're pointless. Like, they're like, they're like vlogs at best. They're like nothing. Um, I don't know what, from the outside, they're, they're pointless. Like, they're just not, they're not anything. But that's fine. It's not to worry about. Because if I worry about that, then I'll stop making them and I get in my head and then I do nothing and the fun is not, no one's having any fun at that point. So there's no, no need for that. But what I really feel like is that the, la the third one out there, it's about me and Miriam going to the doctor Take, we take the subway to the doctor, to the OB for a checkup for the pregnancy. 
this is like a once a month uh, scheduled appointment. And then we're on the subway and we make a plan with Miriam's friend to go shopping in the States um, in the next few weeks. And then we go to the doctor's office, she gets checked up and everything's fine. And so we go for dim sum and then everyone lived happily ever after. It's a really minimal little story, but it's still a story. And is it a great story? Absolutely. No, no, it's not at all, but it's true. Um, and, and it's enough. It was, it's enough. And I, I really liked it. And I think if nothing else serves as more or less a diary entry, um, from a really important kind of time in our, on our lives, um, you know, if, if ever a time I'd really want to document that way, it would be now. So maybe that impulse to be making these videos is just kind of a way of like, um, understanding and kind of processing, uh, this, this whole, um, experience of like, you know, having a baby, etc. So that's great. I would never discourage anyone from doing that. And then otherwise, it feels very much like a post. It feels very much like a poem I would write on my website and talk about here on the Earwig Review. The, the kind of the things I would compare. And I may have talked about this on the show last week. I don't know, but um, whatever. Still, still in my mind. When you have a poem, one of the defining characteristics of a poem is the line breaks. You use, say, one, two, three words, and then you decide to do a line break for some reason, and then you say the rest of it. So you it's effectively you're creating music it's it's the musical kind of properties of um of sentences that's what that is you're creating a certain whatever those little syllables um it's i think fair enough to think of those as um percussive elements um you know or any kind of kind of musical kind of hit musical note whatever um so the music component that goes into a video ends up being the equivalent of what would be on the poem the line breaks so that's the same and then there's the content, the visual stuff. That's the other side of it. The two really feel the same that way. They're just kind of different dimensions. What's behind it is the point of view. So I don't really, I think it's very fun to kind of do both and to kind of combine the things and to think about it as Okay, writing these posts on paper and then expanding the way that they've kind of expanded from there 
to audio to audio with visual here on the podcast and then from visual outside of the podcast and outside of the sitting down and writing and really just essentially this the subconscious kind of ideas that just go into a poem really randomly capturing you using that with this little camera and that's the raw material that you then edit later to me it feels very much like a full circle and it's very fun so that's where i'm at right now here's the other thing let's see how long i end up talking about this for but it's it's where my thoughts have been at there's an arena for video content there's a pool and an act and, a, and an ability to access an audience i think that exceeds that of writing poems in the 21st century writing poems in 2023 is a super archaic form 200 years ago it wasn't the you didn't have a tape player cassette player you could go out and listen to music on the go you didn't have your cd player your mp3 whatever what did you have well that mobile kind of entertainment or that mobile kind of music was in fact a poem that you would probably have memorized that you could recite or someone else could recite without the need to be an amazing singer so for that's that was the function and i think and this is all fucking conspiracy theory and me just throwing um making up my own little whatever history lesson but i mean tell me i'm wrong as the technology grew as we started being able to print more books for one thing because you got to remember too the printing press um was relatively a new invention that even gave people poems on the go which they didn't you'd have to memorize them before that so let's even acknowledge that the printing press is a, is a, a massive um, push forward in, uh, in technology now you had mobile entertainment for the first time it wasn't just memorizing it so you actually had like an artifact a thing and that's great and then we began to have our movies and then the that was yet another huge step forward while well, we should recorded sound <laughs> i'm not what, what am i supposed to do try to break down the um the entire history of fucking media like come on um i'm just trying to get a point across here so don't let me go too far into these rabbit holes but recorded audio then recorded video so all these new dimensions as to how we would kind of share our points of views and stories um you know going back maybe a hundred years ago right with our with the films really um so that's all very new and now the ability to do it as we as we do and kind of pushing those worlds together i feel like that actually feels really 
exciting and very new and um and very fun so writing the poems and then on one hand with paper and pencil and drawing the line between those and between creating videos in the same context i think is very fucking interesting you could probably just go well why don't you just go on tiktok and instagram and all these kind of things i'm like sure why not but that to me is just uh i don't want to deal with, i'm not interested in that world i'd like to to it feels like there's less authorship or attempt at that on those mediums which i don't even have so i can't really really speak to them very well but it's more about capturing like moments and it's almost like capturing exciting like oh like um crazy shit and talking about really important news of the day like something that's like hyper relevant like in this moment and tomorrow will be obsolete whereas what i'm feel like the territory that i want to stay in and that i'm interested in and is a bit slower um and a bit more about authorship and fiction and creating a little story creating a small narrative and getting to the kind of the heart of things rather than like um you know some of the other things that are out there so it gets pretty murky pretty fast but let me try to summarize this whole thing with this idea of talking about different buckets when it comes to content and trying to fit in with it so stand-up comedy telling jokes it's one bucket where really no matter what you're doing if it's on and a ton of podcasts and obviously a ton of youtube um and most of the media that i take in is actually probably stand-up comedy period um and you're going for the laugh that's the currency is will um is it funny or not whatever you can say to get the joke to get the laugh that's that's the value which is great um but for me it's not there's something else i'm looking for that's a component but it's not everything it's not who i am there was a one summer in particular i um did stand-up comedy 30 times uh, and really kind of gave it my attention and it was amazing and in a way i wish i would have done it when i was a lot younger and really put more into it but it, there was something else that i wasn't wasn't fully scratching a certain itch so i then moved into the film world looking for more of that kind of narrative kind of fiction writing thing there's so that's one bucket the comedy bucket the second bucket that I consider is basically the um, the intelligence bucket. It's a lot of content, especially on YouTube, like how to do stuff of um, interesting theories or like breaking down big concepts or being saying things that are really smart. <laughs> um, you know, being an intelligent person. 
and an academic and all those kind of things. That's like an, another bucket and one that I also am, I'm not that person. There's always going to be someone I think that can pull that off better than I can. I don't feel like that's my calling at all, but it's something that I spend a lot of time also watching and enjoying on YouTube, on the podcast, etc. So it's there's comedy, there's laughs, and then there's intellect and interest. Those are kind of the two buckets that I see a lot and and use these things for a lot of things from, right? But I'm like, I don't really fit into either of those things exactly. What what a what works for me? Then here's the third bucket. And obviously we could think of more buckets, but to me, this is kind of the the way I think about it right now. The third bucket is kind of this attempt to um to be authentic. That doesn't mean to always just tell maybe it does an attempt to get to the some truth but it's through fiction so it's it's that's the irony of it is it's like fiction writing in an attempt to um get to something authentic and kind of get to feelings that are bigger than words can kind of explain um in an average way so how do you kind of carve out new territory um and kind of get into that um to that world and that's where the why the using um the poetry medium um and this kind of like long form talking rambling um improv um kind of process collecting all these raw materials and just kind of digging at it to me that that's where i feel like i fit in to to those things so those are those are kind of the three buckets that i see in all of this stuff and i suppose that's what that's where i feel like i'm going towards with as these things kind of, I don't know, as I keep doing them, that's kind of the point and that's the a bit of the value. So there's my kind of episode 20 um, check-in as to what the fuck is going on. Let's get to the posts. These are all from the new year. And then we'll read some prose. Um, January 1st, we have something called Considering Soup. Today, I made asparagus soup. First, I cooked the asparagus in the pot with some oil. And then I added in some onions and garlic and some water and salt and pepper. We had a chicken bone broth pack thing that I added too. And at the last minute, I put in a little bit of dill. Everyone had a bowl and they liked it. 
there's even a bit left that we will eat for lunch tomorrow. I think that people should make soup more often. I think that if more people made more soup, the world would be a better place. You can try to think of an argument against what I'm saying, but I doubt you will find a decent rebuttal. I know that I say a lot of things that don't always make sense or that are idiotic, but this is the real thing. This thing about soup is as true as anything ever. If you think I'm wrong, then you don't know jack shit and you can eat your own ass. So man, good luck with that. There you go. Um, and it seems like this little, you know, truth fucking thing has been on my mind for a week because I'm here talking about it when I wrote this last Sunday and um, not that I'm at all very good at cooking but the point of this is that a simple making a simple soup with like one vegetable or a vegetable and maybe two vegetables and water as the base not even using like a cream base or anything just like a vegetable with some simple broth is such a good fucking thing to eat and i think i'll make another soup this week today we were at the store we always go to this one grocery store on sunday mornings and we check to see what's on sale um and there was nothing on sale today but we needed some food anyway because we're having some people over for dinner and Miriam's cooking for them and there was i shouldn't say nothing on sale because this is what was on sale there was a tomato soup that was on sale that i wanted to buy but Miriam's like uh it's uh she didn't want it. So I was like, fuck it, we don't need the soup. But I was like, oh, but I'll try to make a soup. To make a tomato soup. That would be fun. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing, truly fucking nothing at all. Considering soup. my It's really, I just want to encourage people to, to make soup. Just do it. I feel like I'm better off when I'm making soups it slows down time as well when you make a soup you can't really be in a hurry it just doesn't it's not the way that that it goes when you make soup considering home i called my mom today and we spoke on the phone for a little bit i hope that she's doing okay I moved away from home a long time ago, I think all the way back in 2010, 12 years. When I was a kid, maybe four years old, she told me a bedtime story about a kid who ran away from home. He packed some peanut butter sandwiches, some snacks in his backpack, and he ran away from home. He got lost and met all these dinosaurs who were kind to him. Eventually, they helped him out, and he went back home. And everything was all right in the end. It's one of my earliest memories. 
I doubt she remembers it, but I always remembered that story. It is difficult to be away from the people you love. That's a story that I almost remember that certain memories you might have and you remember them from like a third person point of view, meaning I don't remember them from like my perspective. I remember them from, I could like see myself in the bed and my mom sitting at the end of the bed telling me the story, which is funny, which is weird. Most memories, I think you don't, I don't have like that, but this one I do. I think I kind of held on to this one for, uh, for a long time. And I never knew what to do with this memory either just kind of stayed with me and I just like always had this little bedtime story my mom told me in the back of my head and I was like what do I do with this it's not like you know so there's there's anything to do with it but I always felt like it needed uh it meant something it was just very kind of uh it stayed with me and I think it was her way of saying um you know one day you're gonna take off and you gotta always come back I hope, and I always need you to come back in so many words. That's what I think she was telling me. And there's a side of me. I was so young when she told me this. I almost wonder if I invented this memory for some reason. I'm like, is it, how can I even trust that it's real? Because it was so long ago. And maybe I invented it. But chances are, I, I think it's probably real. It's just, you know, if I'm 35. Like, I'm guessing this is a 30-year-old memory from when I was a very young child. So, you know, what the hell? Anyway, um, I think about, um, you know, our cat. Um, we don't have a kid yet. So, really, all this kind of emotional stuff gets kind of routed into the cat. And sometimes I just, like, look at him and I'm just think about how if he ran away which he has how sad it is and he might just not come back he might just go into the fucking park we got a big park with by the house goes on for a long time he could just fucking find that place and just keep going and going and going and lose track of where he is whatever and it drives me nuts. It makes me, I'm like overtly concerned to the point of like, you've got a problem. You got to let go. You got to figure, you got to figure this out. But that's, uh, that's one thing I deal with for sure. So I recognize, I guess my mom's emotion when I was a young kid and how she probably felt similarly and, um, and how I feel about the cat and how I'll, more than likely feel about our own daughter um you know when the time comes um what is that yeah yeah this the this is what i'm trying to say is the kind of you know the thing about it all is that the truth is I did move away from home. That's the kind of the one of the saddest things. It's not, well, it's, it is, it is kind of just the saddest things is that she was right. 
and I did move away from home and I came, I moved from Calgary to Toronto and I've stayed here now for 12 years and I got married here and we're having a kid here and I'm not moving back home. So she was right. And I feel that's very sad to me. I wish there was something I could do, but I, you know, we can't really move back there. And, and Miriam's got her mom here. So, you know, then they're separated and there's nothing for us in Calgary necessarily. So that's, uh, that's what it is. So I suppose the advice I gave myself at the end it is difficult to be away from the people you love. And that's true. Um, I'm going to take a quick break to use the restroom and I'll edit this down um, afterward. Okay. Um, so one thing I noticed this week with the posts is that I've seemed to um, not be in the mood to write such outlandish fucking bullshit um since we've been back from our honeymoon and i think since um thinking about i guess as we kind of as the the baby comes kind of closer for some reason i think i'm uh, things are shifting a bit and they'll shift back um this you know everything goes through these phases but it's like the first post I'm like talking about making soup. And then the next one I'm talking about an old story about missing my mom moving away from home. So it's like really kind of like, you know, it almost feels like a fucking good housekeeping episode or something. Um, but so it goes next up dim sum. Dim sum. It was nice to take the subway in the afternoon. It's faster than driving and we don't have to fuss with parking. We had a checkup appointment at the doctor. I was making chess moves on my phone while she was talking. And I realized I probably shouldn't do that. The nurse used some kind of radio machine and we heard the baby. Swimming around the water Afterward, we went for dim sum and ordered a lot of food. I was feeling like we spent too much money on it all. But then there were enough leftovers that we ate it for dinner also. Most of all, I'm looking forward to meeting our daughter. When the time comes, I will try to teach her what I know. Dim sum. Um, so here's kind of a fucked up situation where it's like you know all this talk about like here's where i'm like spreading myself thin and i guess where i need to this is the next challenge it's like okay if i'm going to be making these kind of videos this video stuff and writing the posts it's like here's the the poem version and then i made the video youtube version that actually has the footage of us doing all this shit and it's like the same content 
which differ there's different things to it but it's like what the fuck this is weird it's also like it's just like a diary like it's no there's no like it's like some emotional stuff here and i guess it's all true but it's too true when i think about those buckets it's like not really that funny i mean is it there's there's single there's nothing funny about it which is fine is there anything interesting about it no uh as far as the intellect the intellect or anything not really and then there's the the third bucket the kind of authenticity point of view shit and it's like okay it definitely checks that off but it's like it's very true but it's like it's boring like i read that that post and it's like it doesn't some of the when i really enjoy posts reading a post it's like there is something outlandish about it and it feels like there was like a risk in order to say it and i sh maybe it's and that's the comedy part of it right it's like wow that's really fucked up um whereas these ones are it's like it's so dull but it's actually it's important so i've got to i'm clearly uncomfortable with that i'm uncomfortable with i guess this it's like is this is this enough am is something in my this just day in my life is that enough um and it's like on one hand that's the experiment that's that's kind of the road i've started to to go down and um the the challenge is how do you kind of take that stuff and use your skill as a writer to make it interesting and make it relevant that's where the work is so this is raw material how do you turn it into something so yeah like is it kind of boring like absolutely um but there's also like it's important for me to like okay think about try to understand like what having a kid is going to mean you know um and what do i want who do i want to be for the for the kid too right and i think when i said when i was thinking about that in this way through this through writing these these posts and these these poems which i you know if i need to clarify like it's i say the word post but it's poem it's the same thing uh you know um but when i reflect it's like well what can i really do for her and i suppose i i need to teach her the things that i know that's what i'm trying to say in this in this poem and there are a few things that i feel like i actually know but i guess from a child's point of view they look at their parent and they then it's the the parent needs to teach them everything well not everything but like that's what they'll look for so i need to figure out what i what i'm able to tell her and i don't know i guess that's that's what i look forward to that is what i'm trying to say it's not like i need to like go read a thousand books on the world so that i'm like it's some <laughs> the answers but i think uh i look forward to that side of things
um, in years to come. January 4th, flip mitts. All right, flip mitts. I was online shopping for a pair of gloves that I can use my phone with. They have special fingers so you can text. I read some of the reviews and a lot of people are saying, God damn, these fucking gloves don't work for shit. They're warm, but you can't type jack shit with these fucking things. I was scratching my head and looking through all the options. A lot of them are really expensive. Some are over a hundred bucks. I saw one pair that were highly recommended by many, but they cost 40 typo. They cost 40 bucks. I saw one pair that were highly recommended by many, but they cost 40 bucks. And then I had the realization that I could get those old style mitts so you can flip your, that flip so I could get those old style mitts that flip so your fingers come out. Then you don't have to worry about anything. And they're probably cheap. Problem solved. Get the flip mitts. But first, I'll check and see what they have at Costco. It's always good to do that. That's how I was raised, at least. And then, that way, maybe I'll get a hot dog or something after. So, clearly I'm thinking a lot about um, childhood. And I was, you know, fuck, like, there was a few episodes there where I was, like, writing, just writing obscene bullshit, and I wasn't allowed to talk about any of this kind of kid stuff yet because it you know whatever was it viable etc etc you don't really tell anyone for what is it 12 weeks was kind of what we figured and now i'm able to talk about it and i'm just like writing these like i need new mittens and which ones will i buy <laughs> maybe i'll check costco it's just like so fucking it's it's so nothing and there's an irony to it obviously when i'm writing it i'm like i know how banal and and mundane it is but um and that's the reason to do it like the absurdity is how how simple it is but then again when i read it now there's like there's no risk to be taken by talking about something i'd have to really put on like a mask of like pretending that this was a big deal and performing in such a way but i'm not i don't want to do that Anyway, the reason that I was needing these gloves is because I keep taking the cat on these walks because he wants, when we were away on the honeymoon, I should, I was wanted to mention this before he, we've, our, my mom-in-law didn't tell us until this week that he, he did escape when we were gone because she was watching him and She'd lost him for like three hours and uh, she kept, she was looking for him all over and she kept, she saw him on the fucking neighbor's roof, <laughs> which um, it's so funny, man. You don't know, like, I don't know. He was like running, he was going all over the place. She said he was up in the trees and, and on the roof and everything. 
and she couldn't get him down. He was just like staying there, hanging out, doing whatever. So anyway, since we've been back, he keeps like meowing, meowing, meowing. He wants to get out so bad. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand like why he wanted to go out so bad. It's because he got out and he saw the world and he loved it. Um, and now I've got to find a way to like, like, so I keep taking him on these walks with the little harness because if we, I know that if we just let him go out into the world, he's, he's such an adventurous cat that I, I, I don't know if he would come back. Maybe he would, but the thought of just taking him, letting him just go, he's just so curious and so adventurous and so, um, he loves, he's, he loves getting into trouble and he loves scrapping with the other animals and he loves, he's so, he's, he's aggressive, right? Um, that I, I really don't know if he would come back and, and that, and I can't handle that. So taking him on these walks and it seems like the more he's realizing that the, um, that this is becoming consistent he's not meowing as much. He's not going as crazy. So I'm like, okay, is this, is this a, a compromise? And he gets to smell the area. You know, I'm trying to take him around everywhere. He smells everything so that if he did get out, um, he'd be able to really find his way back. He'd know all the sense. He'd know where he is. So, you know, anyway, I need gloves. <laughs> that I can hold the leash with because the ones I have right now are like just too kind of I can't like grab it enough and so I was like I need gloves and the ones that I want the ones that can use the that can text and use the phone and I can use my little my new camera too um because it has like a touch screen but apparently none of those fucking things work anyway but I found some uh we looked at Canadian Tire the great Canadian Tire and I saw the flip ones and I was like, eh. like they're so kind of clunky and like the thumb is, is locked off. So, you know, this is my, this is the, the conclusion I came to. There he goes. Open the door. Um, so gloves. I found some gloves that will be coming in the mail this week. Here's motivational speech. It's good to write the most fucked up story you can. It's good to write whatever the hell you want. It's good to write the most bizarre thing, the b most bizarre possible thing. It's good to write something that people don't give two shits about. It is good to put effort into not giving a fuck. It is good to put effort into writing something that people will think is too melodramatic. It is good to put effort into writing something people will think is too mundane. It is good to put effort into letting the story be what it is and finishing it and writing the next one. I know sometimes it's a shit process and a lot of guys kill themselves over it. Reconcile your intuition and figure it out for your own sake or die trying, I suppose. Does that not sum up most everything I think I was kind of reaching at for uh, on 
earlier in this conversation today, Cartons monologue today. Um, yeah, I think a, a lot of the time I'm like, I worry my writing neurosis on all these different mediums is like, is it too melodramatic or is it too mundane? Those are kind of the, the, the opposite, um, kind of, um, those are the brackets, right? Those are kind of the, the far ends of, of the spectrum here. Um, I think a lot of the, some, some of the tone that I really like is things that are super mundane and melodramatic and trying to like hit that kind of perfect spot and using the, the irony between those two things, um, to create tension when you're writing something. Um, I think that's, that's kind of a decent tool if that makes sense. Mundane plus melodrama. Putting those things, yes, it's like, you don't want to be too much one or the other, but when you, if you can operate, put them together, put them closely together and kind of have them kind of um, creating a complication within themselves, there's actually some good friction uh, to build to build off of there i would say that's pretty um pretty common over the the years of what i ended up writing a huge point of interest okay this is the last post of the week it's called broken delete key i was standing in the hallway today and i thought of something Girls sit down to pee every time they go to the bathroom, which means they always have the option to take a crap. Boys, on the other hand, don't always get to take a dump every time they take a whiz. It's smart the way they do the way they do it that way. For the most part, they're probably less constipated. But there's no way I'm gonna try to take a dump every time I go to take a piss. I'm looking at the hallway again now, and I don't know why that occurred to me when it did. I must admit that I wish I wrote something else here today, but my delete key seems to be broken. It seems there's nothing I can do about it now. Broken delete key. Is what it is. So, one, two three, four, five, six. There's the six posts for the week. Um, as a whole, that doesn't feel that remarkable of a group of posts. But then again, I think um, I can see where the work is. I can see where I need to get better at writing I, I, period where I need to get better at writing. When I look at these six posts, I'm like, kids, you're actually, you're like writing some things that are true, some things that happened. 
and I don't, I feel like I'm not really, there's a lot of like overcome, I've overcome some fears about writing stuff like this before, but I'm not good at it. I'm not actually good at writing this stuff yet. Um, and I feel like that's where the, the work is going to be. Uh, or there's an opportunity to get better. Because truthfully, like I don't, having read those, I don't want to, I don't think I need to criticize them necessarily, but I don't have the feeling of like, wow, that was fucking amazing. Or I discovered something new about myself. I'm just documenting, documenting. And that's probably one of the dangers of using of putting that can using that camera so much and documenting and documenting and it's like that's a frame of mind and so when that maybe that when that influenced the writing of the posts every day it's just like huh it's really just documenting and not building something new which is generally the excitement of it so it's good. I'm glad we did that, but admittedly, not the greatest content of um, of all time. So I'm gonna grab Blue Nile, and this is. Let's see how far it goes. Chances are, I'll read the whole thing, but maybe the clock will be just kind of ticking and ticking, and I'll decide not to. But Let's see what happens. Okay. This is uh, the Blue Nile. This is chapter seven. And I know it's been a couple weeks since, because um, we put in Herman's jail and then we had a huge amount of posts. It's actually been a month probably since we left off the story. Um, so this will kind of, this might feel kind of new um but that's fine i'll do a full audiobook of this whole thing later anyway kind of good copy of it chapter seven he stood inside of crocodile rock and thought of castrating himself he pushed his way to the bar and stood next to some guy that he thought he recognized but he didn't know from where the guy kept staring at him igor looked at him and then looked away quickly can I get you a drink? What? You want a drink? Okay. The guy stepped closer to Igor. You know Sasha? Winston. What? I'm Winston. Oh. What's your name? Igor. What? Igor. Igor? Yeah. Cute. What? What are we drinking? Oh, uh, can I get an energy drink? Winston smiled at Igor and then ordered two energy drinks. They chugged the energy drinks and stared blankly at the dance floor. Eventually, Winston walked away from him. He continued to stand there. He looked at everyone on the dance floor and noticed they were all men. Igor felt an arm around his shoulder. It was Sasha. Well, fuck, man. Are you a gay-ass bitch? No. Dog, are you trying to be gay, man? I, uh, I just, I wanted to ask you something. Bro. I don't even know what to say to you. Well, I, uh, I need to get a truck for something. Yo, are you fucked, man? Man, I just, there's this, this chick and I need to get a truck for a job for her. So, like, 
man, I wouldn't be asking if it wasn't like fucking, I don't know, man, can you just help me? Dog, if you literally ask me anything ever again, I will melt your dick with a magnifying glass. I will turn your ass into a glory hole for every fucking fudge packer who ever lived, you fucking bitch. Igor stood outside of the bar and stared at the road. Eventually, he went into the alleyway and took a piss on a cement wall. A car drove towards him and illuminated the stream. He turned away from them, but then the piss splashed off the wall and got onto his pants. On the way back to his apartment, he saw a truck parked near the gas station. Its window was slightly open. He checked the doors. They were locked. He tried to pry the window down, but couldn't. He hit his elbow against the window, but he could tell he wouldn't be able to break through it. He took off his shoe and put it on his hand. He punched, through the, he punched the window, but it hurt his hand. He found a rock and tossed it at the window. It bounced back. He tossed it until the window cracked. When he lifted the rock again, he saw the meter maid standing in front of him. She stood silently. She stood silently. He held the rock above his head. She looked at the truck's back tire. She'd chalked it before. She wrote something down into her notepad. She wrote a ticket and put it under the windshield wiper and walked away without looking at Igor again. He felt paralyzed standing with the rock over his head. He put the rock down and sat on the curb. After an hour, a liquid trickled towards his foot. It was his energy drink piss. It had followed him. He felt less alone and in a way guilty that he had abandoned his piss there, alone in the alleyway behind Crocodile Rock. He sat there and eventually became mourning. Igor looked at the sun. It was hidden behind some shapeless clouds. He saw then there was a Brinks truck idling outside of the bank. One of the guards stayed in the truck while the other got out and pushed a dolly down the sidewalk. Igor followed him into the bank. He stayed in the lobby and stood next to the complimentary coffee station. He watched the guard pass the counter and walk towards the vault. He poured himself a cup of coffee and watched a woman withdraw a large stack of bills from the teller. She neatly put the money into her purse and on her way out, she smiled at Igor. He smiled back between a sip of coffee. He looked at the bank's security cameras. One of them was clearly pointed in his direction. When the guard came back from the vault, Igor put the coffee onto the counter and followed them out of the lobby and to the sidewalk. Igor pushed the guard's face against the bank door. He saw his breath fog against the glass. The guard did not retaliate. He released the dolly and averted his eyes from Igor. Igor took a bag of money from the dolly and ran across the street. He heard the commotion build behind him. He heard the driver yelling at him and the guard, but he didn't look back at the truck or the bank. He passed his apartment, continuing onward for hours until he had walked far enough that the city was well behind him. He passed through every neighborhood, lugging the bag of money. He crossed the highway and until there was no more streetlight or roads. There was only dirt and a white sky. Finally, he stopped walking. He sat on the ground. There was, there were no. Finally, he stopped walking. He sat on the ground and was desperately hungry. He looked at his phone. There were no new messages. As the days passed, the horizon did not change. He hoped to see an insect or some semblance of a companion, but the most life that he saw was a leafless twig. During bouts of torrential rain, the dirt became mud and he sunk up to his knees. He held the bag of money over his head until his arms had no strength and quivered like gelatin. He lay in the mud and burrowed himself under the bag. He woke in the darkness having felt some chalky teeth biting into his ankles. He was frightened as the stars formed above him. He thought they were watching him and would eat him if he slept again. 
He looked at the stars and thought that ultimately he was nothing more than a minor and ineffective parasite on the earth. The mud had dried and he awoke as a statue, like some unremarkable god swallowed him whole and then pushed him out as defecate. His eyelashes flap flexed dirt upward. He woke beneath the truck and had no recollection as to how he got there. He rolled out from under it and saw plastic tables beneath a long tent and a row of trucks that were parked nearby. He looked in a garbage can sauce, scraps of food on paper plates. He took them and ate whatever smears of food were left on them. There was a red plastic cooler. He opened it and found melted ice and two diet colas. He chugged one of the colas and felt the foam of it expand in his mouth. He chugged one of the colas and felt the foam of it expand in his stomach. He coughed and felt his throat prickling and he drooled down either sides of his mouth. Immediately he felt a burst of hyperactivity and nausea. His ass felt like it was draining a euphoric battery acid. He went back to the truck and sat in the driver's seat. He kept the bag of money on his lap between him and the steering wheel. He looked under the visor for the truck keys, but they were not there. He stared at the horizon and thought of driving it back to the city, but he was unable to discern the day from the night. He drifted off, and when he woke up, he was kneeling in a hole. He found some sesame snap bars in a plastic bag on the ground. Most of them seemed to have been eaten by rodents, but he ate what was left. A machine beat from ahead. He saw a small flashing light. He went towards it, dragging the bag through the darkness. He imagined a bat eating his spinal cord, and then looked upwards and saw bats hanging above him. The machine light blinked and strobed over the bats. He stared at them until he realized that there were no bats, only sprigs of stalactite. He walked farther, his fear built, and he walked into something that hit him in the face. He tripped and fell into the mud. He searched in the dark, desperately trying to find the bag. He felt a large, jagged piece of wood in his palm. He opened a latch and felt through a box of hardened phalluses. He brought some of them towards the blinking machine light. He knelt on the ground and wiped the mud from his eyes. He became joyful when he saw that he had arrived at an incredible, at an incredible supply of dynamite sticks. He stayed there for a long time until eventually he saw beams of light that pierced through a scattering of bats and stalactite. Of bats or stalactite. The lights moved towards him and he saw that there was a group of miners. They were shocked to see him and they tried and tried to calm him, but he would, but he became hysterical. He lit a match and tried to spark the dynamite, but he realized then that they were not sticks of dynamite at all. They were in fact an important pile of severed erections. He remembered in that moment something his old friend Hubert once said to him, that even his best erection was too flaccid to hold a CD. Igor laughed thinking of that. If only Hubert could see him now. Chapter 8 Chapter 8 He walked off from the horizon until the dirt became grass and the sky lightened. The sun returned and burned his skin. He felt some joy until the burn irritated him and created a large blemish. He heard some wailing cry and walked towards it. He saw a woman who wore a covering over her face. It was made from some sheer material. He saw the shape of her face behind it and felt some sense of familiarity in a way that he could not have expected. She asked if he recognized her. He said that he didn't, but he knew that she looked almost identically to the prostitute that he saw out of his apartment window. She told him that her name was Sarah. 
They walked together and Igor felt lifted. Sarah told Igor that when she was born, her people had been traveling from dead waters towards freedom. She explained that sometime recently, she didn't know when, she had woken up lost from her people. She said that she was cursed by her God. She said that her father had lost his faith and her exile was his punishment and her exile was his punishment. She said that she did not know who her mother was. She had many sisters, most of whose names she did not know. In the night, they fornicated near some tree or another. They ate from the grass that surrounded the tree and stayed there for many days. She had become childbearing and lost the child. They lay on the grass beneath the strange tree and then woke up. And when they lay on the grass beneath the strange tree, and when he, where is that? I forget how to use this program. I'll highlight that fucker. Um, let's do it that way. Sometimes I forget. Is that it? No. I'm just fixing a fucking typo, but. Clearly, I can't remember how to highlight <laughs> is it that is it that in the night they fornicated near some tree or another they ate from the grass that surrounded the tree and stayed there for many days. She had become childbearing and lost the child. They lay on the grass beneath the strange tree, and when he, there it is, I'm using preview, and forgot where the highlight thing was, but it's actually just the pencil on the very top with a fucking line under it. They lay on the grass beneath the strange tree, and when he woke up, he saw that the bag of money was no longer with him. He asked Sarah where it had gone, and she said that she never saw him have it. He saw that she no longer wore the covering on her face and that her clothes looked like they were made of fabrics that were created in factories. He saw how her face had become defined. He looked at the shape of her nose and her eyes. He no longer understood what she looked like. She, no, she was no longer familiar to him. She then saw the blemish on his hand. She told him that he had been burned by an alien fire and she could not fornicate with him again. She told him that she had remembered where her people were. She said that she would that they would give them food and solace. He followed her over the hillside and they saw a sprawling line of people ahead. He saw her walk onward. She carried the bag of money. He ran towards her, but she faded off into the horizon and he did not see her again. He stood in the line of people. He stood in the line of people and saw it lead towards a massive canvas tent. The inside of the tent's canopy was covered in burnt ash. He waited in the lineup for many days. As he neared the tent, he saw that beneath the burnt ash was a large altar. He saw the fire pans and the flesh hooks that were along it. He saw the body of an ox, a sheep whose head had been severed, a bull and a whole donkey roasting alongside some turtle doves. The smell of the meat made him feel pathetic and desperate. He saw the others in the line were thinner than he was. Finally, he reached the front of the lineup and waited some days until he was summoned by a priest who wore an extremely tall hat. The priest spoke to him about his paternal lineage, and Igor said that he did not know what it was. The priest asked him again, and Igor said again that he did not know. The priest saw the marking on Igor's hand and asked him if he had stepped beneath the cloud shadow, and he told, them, and he told the priest that he had. 
The priest asked him again, and he, and he said again that he had. The priest explained to Igor that his people followed the shadow of a cloud to a place where the light and the darkness were not separate from one another. Igor ignored the priest and instead watched the burning meat. He salivated and walked towards the altar. The smoke of it blurred his eyes. He was struck across the face and was to be killed in plain sight, but the priest intervened and said that they had been beneath the cloud shadow, and said that he had been beneath the cloud shadow, and while blemished, he should live. Igor stood in the market. He looked at the stews that cooked and the drying animal hides. He lay in the market and slept behind a vendor stall. Despite the heat, Igor wore the hood of his yellow jacket over his head to protect himself from the sewage that flooded towards him. In the morning, he smelled the burning of the sacrifices that were being made in the canopy. He nibbled on his hand and felt the tendons between his teeth. A man stood next to him and said that if the people were satiated and if they did not starve, there would, there would be no meaning for the sacrifice to burn towards the cloud and the cloud shadow. If the sacrifice was nothing more than mere excess, then it was effectively meaningless and thereby not holy at all. The man asked Igor if he wanted to live the life of a banal parasite or if he wanted to live the life of a righteous man. Igor wandered off and repeated this idea to himself over and over again as he walked aimlessly through the market. After some time, Igor saw that he had no idea where he was. He tried to find his way back to the sewage trap where he had slept before, but he could not find it. He saw a glow of metal in a fire and walked towards it. He saw there was a baker who reached his hand into the fire. The baker saw Igor and offered him the stale crumbs from what had collected below. Igor ate the crumbs and wept. He thought of his mother and understood he was merely a pigeon she fed on her windowsill. Igor ate the crumbs and wept. He thought of his mother, his mother and understood he was merely a pigeon she fed on her windowsill. When Igor lay to rest, the baker told him to leave and to not rest where he was. Igor walked throughout the night and saw many clouds and was confused where the moon was. In the daytime, he walked aimlessly and eventually returned to the market again. It seemed there was no escaping it. He sat on the ground, and the people saw that he was a beggar. He received a can of bamboo shoots, and he ate it and drank the liquid and tried to eat the can as well, but cut his mouth. He went to the line that led to the canopy, and he stood in it for many days. When he came to the entrance, the priest asked him what he offered to sacrifice. He looked towards the smoke of the altar. It was not black like he saw before. He saw the horizon warble in the heat and the smoke that emit was odd. He watched it vibrate past the heat and fade off. He saw some animal's body burning on the altar and the animal was near his size. He told the priest that he would offer himself as a sacrifice and the priest told him he was merely excess and the sacrifice was not holy. He returned to the market and thought again about what the priest said. He understood that the people in the market saw him as mere excess, unworthy of sacrifice. He spoke to a random man whose face looked abnormally small, and he told the random man that he was going to die. The random man said that he was not going to die, and he laughed at Igor. Igor explained that the random man misunderstood him and that he himself was going to die, not the random man. The random man said that he understood what Igor meant. Igor said that he would appoint the random man as his successor. The random man looked at Igor and laughed in his face and asked if he dared appoint him as his successor. Igor began to weep and told the random man that he was going to phone his mother. 
The random man saw that Igor had become pathetic, and he knelt with him, and he showed him to look towards where the heat blurred in the horizon. Igor saw then the turtle doves flap that flapped there. The random man told Igor to go and find an unblemished virgin animal, something worthy of sacrifice. Igor looked upward at the black sky. He tried to find the warbling heat, but could not find it in the night. He listened to the dirt as it blew into his eyes and blinded him. He crawled through it for days until finally he saw a flock of turtle doves circling one another. He crept near the turtle dove for one day and reached towards the one that was unblemished. He caught it by the neck and another pierced its beak into his arm. He screamed and held on to that turtle dove. The others swarmed towards him and pierced into his skin. He screamed until they became still. He felt the turtle dove move in his hand, trying desperately to escape. Igor held the turtle dove and wanted to cook it and eat it, but instead he would have to bring it back to the canopy so that it could be burnt senselessly and sacrificed in the name of some cloud. Igor held the turtle dove and wanted to cook it and to eat it, but instead he would have to bring it back to the canopy so that it could be burnt senselessly and sacrificed in the name of some cloud. He hid the turtle dove in his jacket, and the men he passed in the field saw him, and they did not attack him. They saw only that he was a beggar, with no concealed turtle dove. They saw only that he would be burned alive by the sun as a senseless wandering psychopath. In the night, he returned to the baker and confided in him that he had captured a turtle dove. The baker said to give, the turtle, to give him the turtle dove, and he would cook it into a loaf that they would split equally. But Igor showed the baker that the turtle dove was unblemished, and seeing that, the baker gave him a quarter loaf of his bread. He assured Igor that if he brought an unblemished turtle dove to the lineup of the canopy, he would be greatly rewarded. Igor went to the canopy lineup and stood in it for many days. He showed the turtle dove to the priest and was awarded two coins. Igor went back into the horizon and some days afterward he caught yet another unblemished, unblemished turtle dove. He concealed it as he had before and avoided looking at the men that passed that he passed in the field. They saw him again as a wandering psychopath, but now heard the copper coins that he had in his jacket. They asked him for the coins and he did not look at them. They pushed him onto the ground and saw the unblemished turtle dove that he had. He showed them that he would bite the head off of the unblemished turtle dove in their shadow if they did not set him free and they became afraid of that sinful act and did not speak to him again. Igor took many turtle doves from the horizon until much time had passed and he returned to the mark with an unblemished ox. He brought the ox to the baker. The baker told Igor to give him the ox and he would cook it into a loaf that they could split equally. Igor told the baker that it was an unblemished ox. The baker paid no attention and would not and would sac not sacrifice the unblemished ox, and he cut the head. And he cut the head from the unblemished ox. That doesn't make sense. The baker paid no attention. And he cut the head. That was you know, okay. The the baker paid no attention, and he cut the head from the unblemished ox. They sat with the ox. And in the morning, Igor saw that the baker's skin had become stone. Before he perished, the baker told Igor that, that to fear the cloud, to fear their god, was an act of bravery. To fear him was to understand him and his reverence. And then the baker died. Igor stayed with the baker and the ox as they rotted into the dirt 
and he remembered the kindness that Vanessa showed him, and the kindness that his mother showed him, and the kindness that Sarah showed him. But most of all, he remembered the prostitute, and he held her memory dearly. Okay. And here we have the final chapter of the Blue Nile. Chapter 9. Igor walked for many days and became lost from the market and the canopy. He found himself motionless, staring upwards in the daylight, wondering where the stars had gone. He vowed that he would accept any god, even at discount quality, if they would, if they would help him. He blew snot from his nose and stood near a cliff. He looked below, facing a sure death. Perhaps the discount god he had prayed to had led him there and offered him mercy. He thought of his mother in her kitchen, the city heat and the noise of the radio playing in the background. He felt a soreness and a paralysis, as if he were in a purgatory between the end of his life and the memory of his mother. He could not reconcile it and he could not overcome it. It seemed that the vow he had made was useless. His word had no value, not even to the discount god. Finally, he removed the jacket's hood and felt that the hair from the top of his head was gone. He knelt in the dirt like a goblin and saw a broken piece of plastic at the bottom of the cliff. He stared at it until he recognized that it was a broken bicycle helmet. He did not see any dead man or any bones or any bicycle. He saw that he did not have courage to prove his faith to the discount god. He felt the presence beside him. He turned and saw a mange fox. He saw that the fox's eyes were almost entirely crusted closed. The fox stepped towards him and a vertigo overtook him. Igor walked backwards towards the edge of the cliff. He spoke desperately to the fox and tried to convince him that he was a friend. He saw that the fox too had been separated from its people, like he had been from his. The tribe of foxes had followed a cloud towards water and freedom. He learned that the fox's father had strayed from the tribe's faith, and despite the fox being a bastard from his father, he, had, he was burdened with a life of reconciling his sins. The fox, his father's only son, was exiled from the tribe's punishment, and Igor wondered now if perhaps his exile too was merely the result of his own father's sins. Igor looked at the fox's shadow and saw how it changed in the light. The fox came near him and opened its mouth and bit into the blemish on his hand. He recognized the way the teeth felt and knew then that it was not the stars that tried to eat him when he slept in the mud. It was this very mange fox. Igor cried to the fox and begged him to have mercy on him, but the fox would not release its jaw, so Igor beat the fox with his other fists and choked it with his torn sneaker. Igor wept, seeing that he had killed the fox. He wanted the fox to have been his friend, but the fox could not overcome its instinct. Igor saw that he was the same as the fox, and perhaps no matter his attempts, he could not overcome his nature either. In that moment, Igor saw himself, perhaps for the first time, and understood he was not and never he was not and never would be anything greater or worse than who he already was. Igor had no ability to create fire, and his attempt to eat the fox's flesh was unsuccessful. Instead, he built an altar for the fox and left it to rot as a sacrifice to whatever discount God found it first. He walked throughout the night and saw many clouds overlapping one another. He chose one to follow, like he imagined the fox would have. He did not know if his intuition would lead him astray or if he would serve as a righteous compass, but still he followed it because he was nothing more than it. After some days, he saw into the distance. There was a building and a large monument of a brass fox. 
He looked at the shadow that it cast and the sun that reflected off of it. He looked towards the statue and saw how the fox reigned over everything that he saw. He felt a fear and a reverence. He walked into the building, his sneakers destroyed, his socks destroyed, his toenails broken and twisted through his sock and his sneaker, his ratted yellow jacket. He stared blankly ahead, his eyes watered, and it occurred to him that his manhood protruded from his underpants. He made a discreet adjustment to resolve this issue and smiled some. He found a computer terminal and watched a video that a girl had made about which skincare products she thought were best. There was a commercial for a new truck that came out. Igor clicked the ad and learned about the new truck. He watched some videos of people having sex until he felt that he had become bored. He sat quietly for some time until finally he typed in his sister's name. He clicked through the sites and saw that there was a page that explained a lab that she was in. He scrolled through the page and understood that the building he was in was the same university where her lab was. He followed the maps closely and eventually he saw his sister. She was extremely angry to see him and showed no sign of relief or joy. She punched him in the shoulder and felt how frail his body had become. She dragged him through the hall and screamed at him. She tossed him into her car and drove him to her apartment. She cursed at him and told him he smelled like piss and vomit and shit and that he was a disgusting asshole. At her apartment, she gave him an energy bar and a juice box and forced him into the shower. She gave him clean clothes, a pair of her jeans, and an old t-shirt. She laughed at him and told him that he looked foolish. She put some fish into a pan and it crackled in the oil. He drooled and nodded his hand, and she scolded him and hit him with the spatula. She served him the fish with some black bread, and when he ate it, he tasted his mother's cooking. He watched her put some scrap breadcrumbs on the windowsill like his mother would. Soon a pigeon arrived, and then another. He watched their wings flapping and saw one that was unblemished and worthy of sacrifice. He felt ambivalent about that pigeon. He was unsure if he should capture it and trade. Capture it and trade it for the truck that he saw the commercial for, or if he should capture it and sacrifice it to the discount god. When he stood to go towards the pigeon, he saw an angle on the, of the window that reminded him of the pizza sign that he used to look at from his old apartment. He remembered the prostitute that stood beneath the pizza sign and felt that he admired her. His sister asked him what the fuck he was doing, and he, and he explained his ambivalence towards the bird and the truck and the discount god. He told her about the prostitute and the pizza sign, and then his sister told him that sincerely, he was a fucking idiot. That's the end of the Blue Nile. I think the only last note I'll, I'll say today, despite how I think I felt a little underwhelmed by the, the week's posts, And knowing I was working on the edit of the Blue Nile, everything I just read, I can see actually that the simplicity of the posts acted as actually a pretty good um, almost neutralizer antidote to the the absurdity and the the um and 
the what's the word of how all of that was i don't the word's not coming to me it starts with an o <laughs> but there was there you go that's the earwood review episode 20 as usual thank you for for listening and i will look forward to um talking again um next week